It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. Now, from the most powerful city in the world, a new generation of conservative talk. Fair, fresh, fun. It's the Guy Benson Show with Guy Benson. It is Wednesday, July 14th, 2021. Welcome into the Guy Benson Show. I'm your host, Guy Benson, broadcasting live from New York City, world headquarters of Fox News in Midtown Manhattan, and I'm delighted to be here. I'll be on Gutfeld's show tonight, Fox News Channel, on his panel. I'll be filling in for Kennedy on Fox Business Network tomorrow night and Monday night. So lots of TV duties here for yours truly in the coming days, but not missing a beat on the radio. Right here. Three hours a day, 3 to 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Our website is GuyBensonShow.com. The podcast is available there and many other places for free every day. No charge on demand if you miss even a moment of the show. Let me tell you about today's show on radio. Harris Faulkner is going to be here coming up. She'll be sitting right a few feet away from me in this studio. Looking forward to seeing her in person for the first time in a very long time. Sandra Smith will also join us. Talking about, among other things, inflation and a new agreement, apparently, the Democrats have struck amongst themselves only to spend three point five trillion more dollars. So the spending spree continues, even with fears of inflation rising. Later in the show, Matt Finn will join us from Chicago Fox News correspondent. He is covering the latest round of the legal troubles of Jussie Smollett. Remember him, the actor who claimed that he was beaten up by some Trump supporters in the dead of night in the middle of winter in freezing cold Chicago? And it turned out that the evidence points to him paying two black guys to do it. And they turned on him. Looks like a huge hoax. Those charges The hoax charges for lying to police were dropped in this sweetheart deal, and then that all got reversed. And now Smollett is facing charges again and a trial. What is the latest? Matt Finn will bring us up to speed. It's sort of a small little wrinkle. It's not one of the most important stories in the country, but we've been following it since that whole controversy occurred. With the alleged incident happening in early 2019, And with each twist and turn, I find it interesting. And I'm sorry, if you try to smear a city, if you try to smear Trump supporters, if you try to draw attention to yourself and talk about a hate crime and you made it up, you should never live it down. And you certainly should not live it down until at least some justice has been applied. That might happen. We'll see what Matt Finn has for us from the courthouse in Chicago. Finally, Mary O'Grady of the Wall Street Journal. We quoted from... Her piece on Monday involving Cuba and the uprising there, there are updates on the ground in Cuba. What is happening? Because there's only so much we really know. And what, if anything, can the United States do about it? We'll ask Mary O'Grady about that later in the show. Plus, we'll have an update 
in our Woke Tales file. If you've missed that, I think you might enjoy it. Even though each example is often quite frustrating, sometimes demoralizing, sometimes angering, at times it's it's funny. And you have to occasionally laugh at it or else you might be tempted to despair. And I think covering it, highlighting it, ridiculing it sometimes is part of the way that we that we beat this whole thing, beat this mentality and ensure that it doesn't win because the woke mob cannot win. And we're going to do what we can to resist and combat them virtually every day here. Anyway, so the long and the short of it is we've got a big show for you here from New York today. Let's bring you a Fox News alert. Stats, the coronavirus case count in the United States, cumulatively 33.9 million, with the real number being significantly higher because we just didn't really have the testing capacity, especially early on. Experts say that number is almost certainly well north of 100 million. The death toll in the United States, 607,535. The Dow is currently up right around 80 points. So just shy of 35,000, we'll keep an eye on that with less than an hour to go in the trading day down the road here on Wall Street. So yesterday, we made reference on this show a few different times to a speech being given in Philadelphia by Joe Biden, the president, about the supposed, alleged assault on democracy being posed by Republican states pushing voter integrity laws. And we responded to some of what the president had to say. We talked to our guests about it. We tied it, of course, into this hilarious stunt of the Texas legislators fleeing to Washington, D.C. to try to uh, prevent the Texas law from being even voted on or debated by denying a quorum. They didn't have enough of the senators flee. So they had a quorum in the Texas Senate, and they actually passed the bill last night out of the Senate. So it's just waiting there for the House. They can't hold out forever. It's going to fail. It's just a matter of when. And on the logistics and the timing of that, you can go back and listen to our interview yesterday with the governor, Greg Abbott from Texas. But I want you to hear a few of the things that Biden had to say. And then today, this morning, Senator Mitch McConnell responded on the Senate floor, and I think the speech was really good. But first, Biden, cut one. The assault on free and fair elections is just such a threat, literally. I've said it before. We're facing the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War. That's not hyperbole. Since the Civil War. No, it is hyperbole. It is hyperbole. Think about what this country has gone through, been through, Since the 1860s, a lot. We've been through a lot. We've overcome every challenge. The notion that some voter ID and integrity laws, even if you object to them, rise to the level of that degree of threat. I mean, it is the definition of hyperbole, which is why he feels apparently compelled to interject that it's not hyperbole. Doth protesting too much, etc. He went on cut to 21st century Jim Crow assault is real. It's unrelenting. And we're going to challenge it vigorously. 
While, while this broad assault against voting rights is not unprecedented, it's taking on a new and literally pernicious forms. Literally pernicious. Ooh. We got a literally in the first soundbite and another literally in the second soundbite. Joe's feeling himself. 21st century Jim Crow assault. Now, by the way, what they're trying to do now is pretend, and we mentioned this yesterday, although the vice president hasn't gotten the memo yet, but the Democrats are now trying to pretend because they're just getting crushed in the public debate on this. Oh, no, voter ID. We're not opposed to voter ID. And all this stuff, Republicans are trying to mislead you and say that this is all about voter ID. Yes, there are other components. There are other provisions. It's fine to discuss and debate all of them. But the revisionism and the gaslighting, there's that word again, from the Democrats is amazing on voter ID. Here's Jim Clyburn, part of Pelosi's team and the leadership in the House in cut six. Listen to this. I've always had voter ID. And that's why the representative earlier told us no Democrat has ever been against voter ID. No Democrat has ever been against voter ID. (laughs) What? We all know that's not true. If you've paid any attention to American politics for the last 20 years, you know not only is that not true, it is the opposite of the truth. The Democrats have railed against voter ID laws as racist voter suppression every single time they've been proposed. Up and down. They rail. They rant. They demagogue. They fearmonger. They race bait. They have done nothing but loudly, vigorously, dishonestly oppose voter ID laws for decades. But because they finally collectively decided, we keep losing this argument, let's try to make it about something else now. Clyburn actually goes out and claims that no Democrat, quoting, no Democrat has ever been against voter ID. Well, there's one Democrat who called voter ID laws, quote, voter suppression back in October. Let's see if we can get a citation on that. Oh, it was Jim Clyburn. It's an obvious Like, I don't even have to go through and disprove the lie. You know it's a lie. It's been crystal clear what their position is for many, many years. And it'd be one thing if they just changed their minds and said, no, we're in favor of voter ID. We've seen the light. We're out of touch. Massive majorities of the American people, including voters of color, they disagree with us on this. So we're giving up the fight. Voter ID, we're in favor of, but let's debate these other things. Nope, they, of course, can't do that. So they're trying to convince all of us that it's just like everything else. Critical race theory, oh, no, we're the ones who are imagining things. We're the crazy people who are accusing Democrats of being against voter ID because they've been against voter ID year after year after year everywhere it's proposed. So the lie that they have to tell now is, oh, no, we were never at war. With East Asia. Little Orwell reference there. You're out of your mind. Never mind our decades worth of quotes. So Mitch McConnell, cocaine Mitch, Senate Republican leader, he has a very dry delivery, but his substance is really 
good so much of the time. Floor speech today, he opened it with this observation that I think is really clever, and he's right. Listen to cut 15. At any particular moment, with total certainty, Washington Democrats know one of two things to be true. Either American democracy is so well-functioning, so sacrosanct, that nobody can possibly question or badmouth it, or democracy is in total crisis, hanging on by a thread, and only a massive, sweeping, partisan overhaul by Democrats can save it. Now, it can be hard to guess which of those opposite stories Democrats will be shouting on any given day. The narrative flip-flops are at a dizzying pace. And just to After jump in 20- here, by the way, this is such a good point, and other people have made it as well. When Republicans propose some changes or some reforms or some integrity measures at the state level, Democrats say, how dare you? This was the most secure election we've ever had in the history of America. But then they also turn around and say, well, we have to take a complete overhaul. We have to engage in a complete reimagining of our election system and have the federal government grab all of the power and take over our elections in H.R. 1 or whatever the bill you want to call. It's H.R. 1, S. 1, For the People Act. It's all the same thing. A huge federal power grab to take over everything, disempower the states, and empower the Democratic Party. That's what it's all about. And they say that's essential because democracy is under assault. So democracy was its most secure election ever if Republicans want to change something. But if they want to completely take over the system from Washington, D.C., it's because our democracy is in grave peril, the worst since the Civil War. And they'll just alternate between these points depending on their own political interests in the given moment. They might even in the next breath make the contradictory point because it is about one thing and that thing is power. McConnell's whole speech is worth listening to, honestly. It was really good. He was methodical. It's about 11 minutes long. We're not going to get to all of it here, obviously. I tweeted it at Guy P. Benson earlier. But he also took head on what the president said and reacted to it. The president's speech in Philadelphia yesterday. Here's McConnell today in rebuttal cut 20. Yesterday, the president of the United States delivered a speech that was set in an alternate universe. He called these mainstream state laws, these modest integrity measures that are wildly popular with Americans, quote, now listen to this, the single, the most significant test of our democracy since the Civil War? Really? This is our new president who promised to lower the temperature Bring America back together and rebuild a civil society where we can dialogue as fellow citizens. Remember that? Unity? That's the person who's now yelling that mainstream state laws are more dangerous than two world wars, more dangerous than poll test and Bull Connor and actual Jim Crow segregation, and somehow analogous to the Civil War? That's what the President of the United States said yesterday? What utter nonsense. 
it would be laugh out loud funny if it wasn't so completely and totally irresponsible. McConnell later said, Americans know that having widespread and accessible voting along with voter ID isn't an attack on democracy. It's the definition of democracy. He was right. It was a strong rebuttal to the Democrats line. He took some shots at the Democratic legislatures from Texas. Those legislators who are now in Washington, D.C. And responded, I think, appropriately to President Biden. Mr. Unity who is engaged in incredibly divisive and insulting rhetoric. We are late, but we're just getting started. It's the Guy Benson Show from New York City. We'll be back after this. You're listening to a new generation of talk. Generation of talk. Guy Benson. Hey, it's Clay Travis. Join me for Outkick the Show as we dive deep into a mix of topics. New episodes available Monday to Friday on your favorite podcast platform and watch directly on outkick.com forward slash watch. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The One with Craig Gutfeld, the co-host of The Five, like you've never heard him before. You know him, you love him, you want to be like him. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. No Democrat has ever been against voter ID. Back on the Guy Benson Show, Jim Clyburn, Democratic leadership. No Democrat's ever been against voter ID. Here's his tweet from Jim Clyburn, October. Long voting lines, closed polling locations, voter ID laws. They're all voter suppression. Maybe go back and delete some tweets, Congressman, if you want to tell us what you've never opposed. Because it's not true. And you're telling on yourself with your own words that are on the record. By the way, yesterday when we were talking about the Texas stunt from these lawmakers who took their chartered jets to Washington with their Miller Lite beer. No masks, which is very nice if you can pull that off on the plane. Little people could never get away with that, but they fly smiling, maskless to D.C., and they're raising money and holding press conferences. And I said they expect the Democrats to be on their side and to cover for them. So here's a little example from Vox, and Vox, they're huge hacks over there, but they think that they're just journalists. Headline, the GOP voting bill that literally caused Texas Democrats to flee the state explained How do they cover when Republicans did this in Oregon last year? Headline, Oregon Republicans are subverting democracy by running away. Again, it's an escalation mirroring growing anti-democratic sentiment in the GOP. Ah, interesting. With Fox News Podcasts Plus, you can enjoy all your favorite Fox News podcasts without commercials. Subscribe now at foxnewspodcasts.com. GuyBensonShow.com. From New York City, it's the Guy Benson Show. We are live. I'm glad to be here. And if you're watching on the stream at Fox Nation or elsewhere, you'll notice. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I had to we get have... rid of my gum. I didn't know what to do with it. There was some styrofoam on the floor, so I just broke it in half. There? It looks like a Kit Kat now. I like squish my gum in between the two pieces of styrofoam. It's Sorry. Harris Faulkner, <laughs> anchor of the Faulkner Focus. Also co-host of Outnumbered. So I'm I'm getting ready to, to introduce her, and I see out of the side of my eye, she's like frantically reaching for something, and she got this piece of styrofoam, and then she 
broke it like in a like karate move or something. Yep. Yeah. And I was like, what is she even oh. doing? She oh, that's the gum. Be careful. Yeah. <laughs> she had to get rid of her gum because it's radio. Uh, right. Well, and now, I didn't want to sound like, you know, I've been standing on the corner waiting for you to, to drop by Julia Roberts. <laughs> so, remember how she like chewed gum the whole time? Is that Pretty Woman? Yeah, <laughs> it's been it's been a long. No, it's time. not actually Julia Roberts. <laughs> it's, it's been a while. character she played <laughs> since I've seen Richard Gere. It's been a long, long it time. Has a been. classic. And nobody has that car, right? Nobody has that car anymore. What did he drive? A Lamborghini or Ooh. a DeLorean? Or I can't remember. When did that movie come out? Nineties. Oh, have it's been, been right? a minute. It's been a hot minute. I was yeah. probably I probably wasn't allowed to watch it actually when it no, came out. I would hope not. I was a kid. Yeah, you were a child. It's a adult subject matter. <laughs> If I adult <laughs> themes, you might even say. I was young, and that tells you how long ago it was. Harris, it is great to see you. We were you just too. saying, I don't think I've because I've been on the air with you many times during the pandemic, but always in boxes from our respective yeah. cities or homes. I have not seen you in person in so long. It's been over a year, a it, year and a half. It is great yeah. to see you. It's great to see you, and I'm blinded by that wedding ring, by the way. Oh, is it's it beautiful. too little, too shiny? No, it's just lovely. And, well, it's, and so many things have happened. I mean, I saw you in um, pictures at Cat Temp's wedding. Yes. Um, let's see. Megan had her baby. Yep. I mean, if you want to, if you want to follow somebody on Instagram that will make you smile every single moment of the day, it's Guy Benson. Oh my gosh! Well, that yeah. is so no. kind. And of you said the say. kindest things about the people that you love, your friends. It's you're a good guy. Oh, that is wow! I was thank you. You're um, welcome. Let's make sure that we get her her check as soon as possible. <laughs> no. We're very good about that. Um, but you were also saying that we did we did the bump, we did the fist bump. Yeah. You're gonna get to hugging eventually. But I it's just am. it's been it's been a year, right? And people are year and a half reintegrating right into stuff at their own pace. We were actually talking with Bill Hemmer about this also really? yes, just yesterday. People deciding that they are comfortable with certain things on their own timeline yeah. and then when Work will start to say, okay, you have to show up. Yeah, but for me, it's less about COVID and more about personal space. Like I, I literally have fired people in my life that I just didn't have any room for before. And I, I, didn't, I didn't realize that I needed to purge. It's like my shoe closet over time. And it like, a, like a friendship I, purge or just yeah, like All a, of it. Like there were people in different categories in my life that took up an inordinate amount of time and I would catch them in the hallway. And the next thing I know, I'd be late for my own show. And what I realize now is that I don't know anybody that. What, what I owe them is to be present and to be loving and to be honest, but I don't have to stick around for the moments that rob us, you know, the, the gossip session in the hallway. Don't really need to be part of that. And so by spending 16 months away from people, I'm really being extra choosy about the people that I spend my time with. And so that I am a very touchy-feely person. And believe me, Guy, when I return to hugging you, you you're going to have to get, you know, probably some friends to help you out, take you to court, get that paperwork. <laughs> yeah, get that it's paperwork. Like you can have one hug per week. Yeah, and that's it, Harris Faulkner. <laughs> but no, it, it really is about reallocating um, what I call my special forces in my life and making time for the people that really matter and not spending a lot of energy on something that really can take eye contact and a smile. I don't I don't need to be personally invested in every single person's journey, especially when I know it's not reciprocated. Like very few people when they ask how you're doing ever wait for the answer. Why in the world would I hug that person? Yet I was before, I'm surprised I didn't, you know, uh, uh, whatever pre-COVID was, I was probably my own super spreader. 
I mean, I was constantly <laughs> double kissing. And I mean, I, I literally. And my husband would say, because you must be exhausted. He goes, Harris, people feel your love. You don't have to give them everything. And that's the kind of choice that I've made. And so, you know, we can talk politics. We can do anything you want when it comes to COVID-19. But it is as individual a journey as as it is our own individuality. It sounds almost like a combination of taking inventory, yes. being judicious, and doing kind of like a cleanse. Yeah. What it sounds like. Yes. Yeah. And so what is that determined by when you do a cleanse? You... You look at what's going in. Do you really think about it and do you agonize over it or is it just a gut feeling? Okay, so I didn't realize it was happening until last summer. Remember we had a little ebb in the numbers of COVID sure. last July and my husband said, you know, so-and-so wants to get together. We'll all be in mass sitting in the backyard. And I'm like, well, it's 100 degrees. <laughs> so why don't we just add to the distance and take our mask? I mean, that's going to be uncomfortable. And I got to thinking about it, and I'm like, you know what, sweetie? It's not the mask wearing or that. I, I, I don't want to make time for them. I don't think they're worthy. And he goes, worthy of what? And I said, I don't get this time back with our kids. I don't know if the school year is going to have them back, and, and we lose them. And they're not on virtual anymore. I had had three solid months of hot breath in the morning from my 12-year-old, who was 10 when the pandemic started. She's had two birthdays. And my 14-year-old was barely a teenager and as snarky as I'll get out. And I got to spend time with them. Where did she get that from? I don't know. I blame Tony. (laughs) But, you know, just when you wake up in the morning and you see they're growing up. And you, when you have children, you'll understand that when they come to the edge of your bed with that hot, precious overnight breath and you're like, oh, my God. There's a comfort in their smells and their warmth. And I said, I don't want to waste my time this summer with people that – don't matter to me. I want to spend every moment together as this family that we have been because it may now, of course, we were wrong. The pandemic was not going to be three or four months. It got much worse, particularly here on the East Coast, which I know a lot of our family in Arizona and other places didn't understand. They would see it on the news and they'd say, God, you guys got a lot of freezer trucks. I'm like, don't make it a joke. It hurts. <laughs> we were losing so many people. But yeah, no, it, it happened organically. And now... Don't even give it a second thought. And I'll explain to someone, not there yet. And part of the journey of getting there is I miss Guy Benson. It's okay to give him a hug. i got to remind myself that I don't have to keep him out. But I'm, everybody's auditioning at this point. Okay. Well, I'm, tr- I'm trying to <laughs> but uh, you've put already on my passed. best face. No, 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 no. I have but a song and dance number that I've Really? No, oh, but, see, now. But I feel like there's been some very interesting subtweets at some folks here in these few minutes that we've been spending oh, really? together. Well, yeah, you say certain, certain people it's sort of like are out. I wonder if they know they're out. Um, I assume you don't send them like a so, formal divorce paper. You're I don't sort of lie. Like, I don't. And I, I don't drunk tell the truth. Like I'm <laughs> the same way all the time. It's just candid. And I am very candid with people. And I think it's healthy to say to those who question, I get the feeling like you don't want to be around me anymore. And I'm not 16 trying to fire a boyfriend. So I tell people, it isn't that I don't want to be around you. I just can't be. Okay. My time is limited. And, and, and if they want more detail, I'm willing to give it to them, but always with kindness. Like I, I, don't, I don't begrudge anyone. I just know what counts. And when I talk to others who have had 
the journey through this that entitles them to more time to think about life deeply. I lost my dad on Christmas Day of 2020. Um, deep depression in isolation at a senior complex. Mm. Talked with him all the time. Christmas Eve, we were laughing. And he went to sleep on Christmas Day. And he was all dressed up for my sister's Christmas brunch, which he said he would only attend outdoors. And she was very upset because it was even cold in Dallas. And I thought about this and I said, I didn't get to hug some of the people I feel closest to. I'm going to be stingy for a while. I'm going to see what real relationships look like. And I'm going to be more dedicated than ever to be the better side of that relationship. And that takes time. Yeah, I mean, it's been... Wow. Is everyone hanging up now? No, no. I think I think it's fascinating. We didn't plan to go down this path, really. <laughs> no one really. ever does. <laughs> no, that's the thing. We, we plan topics with you, Harris, and then you join us, and we're like, just be ready to throw the script out if necessary. Oh, no. Because we No, because we enjoy having real conversations. And I feel like sometimes so much of what we see in media and mass media are these choreographed conversations where you know exactly what someone's going to say. It's all extremely predictable. Everyone has their own little box. And there's a place for that. But I think, especially on radio, which you have a little more time, it's a little bit more of an intimate Mm -hmm. medium, you can actually have real conversations. And we've had some some real and tough conversations on the radio, you and I, during these last year and a half or two years. And actually, one topic that I was planning to raise with you, and I'm curious what your thoughts are, because I made this point yesterday, and I saw Senator McConnell made this point today on the Senate floor, but it feels a little He's bit... on the Faulkner Focus tomorrow, we just found out. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, he's always a good get. He is. He's extremely thoughtful. He's not exactly a bonanza of excitement. He can way. be. His first visit, it was something he cared about, and oh, he's, when he's very candid. And when he's fired up, you can tell it's yeah. simmering. It's slightly below the surface, but he gave the speech today, and I made a point yesterday... But I feel to some extent I can make the case. I think it's the right thing to say. I have every right as an American, regardless of what I look like, to make these points. Mm -hmm. But when I hear any of the Democrats or let's say the president of the United States over and over and over again invoke Jim Crow. Yeah. When having these disputes over voting laws and drop boxes and the number of hours being in some cases expanded but not the way they want, voter ID, whatever – Jim Crow and that era, and we saw the legislators from Texas singing We Shall Overcome yesterday in Washington, D.C., that song had and has power. Jim Crow means— In the right context. Right. It means something. And I just think it's incredibly insulting and and deeply cheapens something that should not be cheapened when you have leaders doing this from backbenchers from Austin, Texas to the president of the United States— as a black woman, I And I wonder, can't be anything else. Not at this moment. <laughs> at this moment, because you can make points that I maybe can't. I just wonder how that strikes you, setting aside your own personal or anyone's personal politics, the invocation of that period in time and that example and that crucible in our history to make political points today. You ask questions like no one I know. Uh, that has all shades of perspective and context that are spot on and the reason why you don't like it no matter what race ethnicity age group whatever your demographics are is because you don't like to be pandered to and you don't want that for anybody else 
because that's not true freedom. True freedom is you're free to express and be who you are as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. I hope you get there. Pandering to someone is a, is a statement about control. They've figured out what they think you need and what they think you want. Joe Biden candidate. If you don't vote for me and you're black, you're not really black. Mm-hmm. Did I make that up? No, no. You ain't black, I believe was the quote. You ain't black. Yeah. Said it on the radio. Too. Charlemagne the God didn't even warm to it, and he's supposed to be on that side of the aisle as a fan. And he's like, what? I know. It was like a 1960s or 70s um, moment with a DJ. Yeah. The needle stuck on the record. Most listeners don't know what a record is. Um, so young. But, you know, when I look at the subject now, I remember the signs that were up in the background of pictures my mom had of me as a baby and you couldn't really see they were out of focus but she later life later in life would tell me those signs said coloreds only i was born in 1965 on the double nickel don't wreck your brain doing the math my dad was fighting a war for this country he carried a little replica of the flag next to his heart underneath his fatigues he was a combat pilot watching his friends and and comrades die on a daily basis in Vietnam. And when relatives would ask him, how can you go and fight for this country when you can't even go drink out of the water fountain you want? My father would say, because this is America, and she's special. And the most potential of any place on the planet. And I'm an American before I'm anything else. I'm going to stick with America through the struggle, however mighty it may be, because she's worth the struggle. I was raised by a real patriot. Didn't even have 100% of the freedom, only had some of what they had to offer here, and that was enough to go to war for, to fight here for, to do whatever he needed to do. And the the struggle that you referenced then. The civil rights. Which has, that struggle was won. Right, yeah. not perfectly, but it was overwhelmingly. There is no perfection. One. There are human beings involved, but you talk about Jim Crow and you talk about those signs, and and not just the era where they segregated us, but Jim Crow was particularly a violent time in this nation. Look, there's still people who don't like the fact that everybody's getting a seat at the table. I I don't know what to say about that. But America is not a racist country. There, there's so many good people. And there's so many good people who have the ability and the love in their hearts to sit with the people who aren't quite there yet to say, you know what, I'm going to stick with you anyway because I know we're going to get there. That was my dad. That was my mom. And that's who I feel I am. And I think it's harder to do that if you have leaders who are trying to equate that struggle. They're manipulating the situation. With what is happening today. Well, and it's not for your best interest or mine or any American's best interest. It's for their own. So why do they take off? By the way, I have 11 cousins in Texas. So they're spending that taxpayer money and I'm getting text messages every day from my sister. She goes, oh man, I mean, $100,000 for a plane. And I said, well, the Congressional Caucus to its donors paid for that. And she's like, well, what about those $200 hotel rooms? I know we're still looking at that. And she goes, and are they still getting paid? And I'm like, who are you, me? You're the artistic <laughs> one. I'm the one who's like, you know, completely the other side of the brain. No, but she's a taxpayer and she's a citizen. She's yeah. a voter. And she's a voter. I think that 
these Democrats might— But they're manipulating a situation, and it's going to be two seconds before it's all about race when they get arrested. I tell you what, Republicans are in a tough spot here. I had the AG of Texas, Kim Paxson, on today, and I said, do you really think you're going to throw cuffs on people? Can you see the people of color among those congressional— I think they'll play the card, but the problem is they always play the card. If you put handcuffs on them, they're going to play the card with pictures. Yeah. And so I think, Republicans are in a stuck spot because they have every right to take them into custody and to take them to the Capitol. And Paxson, the AG, said so well today. He goes, I have no interest in putting people in jail. I want to put them back to work. Take them to the Capitol. Harris, we're up on a break. You I think it, it, may, it may not work for them. I think that they are alienating people like your sister that you were talking about. I, I think – they might think that they've got this thing figured out. I'm not so sure how it's going to play, and especially in Texas. Of her skin, and they'd be wrong. Harris Faulkner, great to see you on the show. You too. Let's I love do you, it again. Guy Benson. We'll do a hug eventually. Uh, right after this. <laughs> we'll be right back. <laughs> the Guy Benson Show. More next. Jason in the House, the Jason Chaffetz Podcast. Dive deeper than the headlines and the party lines as I take on American life, politics, and entertainment. Subscribe now on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts. Back on the Guy Benson Show, I was going to do a segment here about like a tiny handful of Notre Dame students being angry about Chick-fil-A because they're a hateful company or whatever. I don't have time because we went so long with Harris. That was great. In case you're curious, yes, I did get a hug during the commercial break. Felt pretty good. I earned it. I earned the hug. Sandra Smith will join me coming up. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. I'm Ben Domenech, publisher of The Federalist, and I'm inviting you to join a new conversation with the smartest thinkers out there about the country and where we're going. Subscribe to the Ben Domenech Podcast. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Live from the most powerful city in the world, unconventional talk from a fresh, unconventional conservative, Kai Benson Show. Oh, look, it's a new hour here on The Guy Benson Show. It's our middle hour of 3, between 3 and 6 p.m. Eastern Time. Glad you're with us. GuyBensonShow.com is our website. The podcast is free every day. Fox News alert as we get going. The Dow closes up 44 points, ending the day at 34,933. Joining me now is Sandra Smith, co-anchor of America Reports, along with John Roberts, Every weekday from 1 to 3 p.m. Eastern. And Sandra, it's great to have you back here. Thanks for having me, Guy. Great to be here. I am scheduled to be on your show in the 1 o'clock hour on Friday. And get this, in studio. In studio. (laughs) I was just going to say, when I heard you were in studio for your radio show this week, and our team was booking you, I said, Guy's in, he's in the building. He's in studio. Let's have him on set. I'm very, so I actually <laughs> had to, new world. I had to fill out a thing being like, are you vaccinated? What was your dates? Which one was that? Oh, yeah, Moderna, <laughs> April 8th. I did the whole thing. They're like, oh, you are now clear to see Sandra Smith in the TV studio. I'm like, well, this is fantastic news. And by the way, I don't really want to brag too much about this, but in the last hour, I did in fact get a Harris Faulkner hug here in studio when she joined me, which is uh, pretty big deal. Best, you know, 
I, I, I remember my first, like, kind of post-COVID, post-vaccination hug, and I have a story for a lifetime because it was former Secretary of State Mike Pompeo. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I was in studio, and he was walking by to use one of the pods in the building. Still, at this point, we couldn't have him on the set. But he stopped in to say hello, and I realized when he reached over and, you know, gave a quick little hug to my colleague, I realized that this is the first non-family post-COVID hug I had had. And so forever, that will be my Pompeo for me. <laughs> <laughs> Mark it down. Unforgettable. So, Sandra, I want to talk about politics and the economy, which is sort of where your expertise intersects. And I'm sort of interested to get your take on the inflation numbers, which were higher than expected uh, that just came out. And I know that there are some people really breaking them down into certain categories saying, well, if you take out automobiles and a few other categories, then it's not so bad. It was maybe better than expected. But when you include all the various realms, then the number overall looks somewhat alarming, you know, the highest since 2008. Uh, That unto itself, I think, is an interesting conversation. Is it transitory? How soon will it go away? How worried about it should we be? Then you layer on top of it, though, this active conversation in Washington, D.C., about trillions of dollars of of additional spending that may have been apparently agreed to by congressional Democrats. I mean, it's not like these things happen in a vacuum. There are factors that impact other things. So why don't we just unpack the first part of it first, which is – Inflation, how real is it? How concerning is it? And what do you make of the counterpoints, whether you want to call it spin or, you know, rebuttals, people saying that this is overblown? I will tell you this. Um, I always try to break this down in a nonpartisan way and look at it only from an economic standpoint. Hold on two seconds. Um, And I like to just dig into the numbers the best that I can um, and come to the realization that what is happening right now is an employment situation that is dire for a lot of these companies. They can't get their door. They can't get them to a. Oh, I think we may have lost Sandra. What she was about to talk about was the not unemployment crisis, although in some ways it's related to unemployment benefits an employment crisis where businesses are really struggling to get people to actually even show up to apply for work. And as a matter of fact, there's a new poll out. I saw this story in Axios, which will help make Sandra's point further. Axios has a story about a morning consult poll. 1.8 million Americans, based on this metric, have turned down jobs because unemployment benefits are more beneficial that accrue to their advantage more so than going to work. Millions of people turning down jobs. So I think that's part of what Sandra was saying, and she now rejoins us. We've got the phone connection (laughs) back, Sandra. I'm sorry about that, guys. So um, I thought the morning console poll was fascinating because it really told a story that we've been hearing on the ground from so many of these restaurants, retailers that can't get people to show up for work. And what it revealed was that 13% 13% of 5,000 respondents said that they are receiving enough money from unemployment insurance uh, without having to work. And that's a big number. Um, and that's a problem for a lot of these businesses. And as a result, guys, as you and I have discussed before, you have a lot of these states, mostly red states, 
um, that have opted out of these emergency benefits right. earlier than the expiration because they couldn't get people to work. And they saw that as more beneficial than waiting for the deadline itself. So, uh, you know, at first, I think this was seen as a talking point. Um, the White House even said that they didn't exactly see a tie to it. Um, but now that's hard evidence that people are saying that they're choosing not to apply for jobs because they're receiving more on unemployment. When it comes to inflation, there was a report that I saw that some people in the West Wing are now worrying, could Larry Summers be right? Was Larry Summers, huh. you know, longtime uh, Obama aide and, and, you know, a top advisor in the Obama administration, a Democratic economist, smart guy. He's been out there, you know, ringing the bell saying, everyone, please pay attention. The inflation threat is real. It's not just going to be transitory and go away and melt away quickly. And the White House has pretty much denied that or downplayed it. We're not concerned about it. There are reports that internally they maybe are growing concerned about it. We saw the numbers that we just referenced a few minutes ago that came out uh, within the last few days. But then you're also going to see President Biden fully supportive of Mm -hmm. maybe up to $4.1, trillion of additional new spending between infrastructure and his other priorities, human infrastructure, whatever they want to call it. I mean, they kind of have to pick a lane here. Are they concerned about uh, inflation or are they so unconcerned about inflation that they want to pour four trillion more dollars of spending onto the problem? I think the reports coming out of the West Wing were really telling if they truly are looking at some of those comments that Larry Summers has made quite frankly, since the very beginning, uh, when inflation started to rear its ugly head. And I, I will also point out, as someone who's looked at these economic reports for, for a good chunk of my life, so many of these um, reports are lagging indicators, Guy. The best the best sign of what's really happening is when you hear from people, I'm paying more at my grocery for milk. I'm paying more to take my family out to dinner. I'm paying more when I'm filling up my gas tank. Inflation was, we were starting to see this long ago. Um, and it seems that the White House, seems that Federal Reserve uh, Chair Jay Powell, as you said, he said it's transitory. Uh, it seemed the White House wanted to ignore that fact. Well, it's happening. It's real. There's uh, multiple reports now suggesting that economists are predicting we're going to have another 5% jump in inflation. Consumer prices are going up. And so you tie this all to the spending that we're seeing in Washington now talking about this reconciliation bill. And what does Senator Joe Manchin do? He comes in and says, great, spend all you want. I will only be in favor of that, no matter what the amount is, if you tell me how we're going to pay for it. How do we get this money? How do we pay for it? He's asking the important question that so many that are in favor of this uh, massive spending are not asking. And and that is causing great inflation problems, guys. And here's the thing, Sandra, about that and Manchin, because I'm very interested to see not only what he has to say and a handful of others on the Democratic side, because they technically have the vote. They have the numbers. Uh, They have the math, as Chad Pergram likes to talk about. If they want to pass a reconciliation bill with only Democrats, they could do it. They did it with the so-called COVID relief bill, $2 trillion. Manchin is on board for this bipartisan infrastructure bill that overall I think I support. I think it's a pretty reasonable thing. Could be a lot worse, all things considered. That's from my perspective. But this new top-line number that they're talking about for the next reconciliation bill, Democrats only for all these other priorities, 3.5 
trillion dollars. And I tweeted yesterday, that is roughly almost exactly the size of the entire federal budget in 2010, which wasn't that long ago. Every single dollar spent by the federal government, military, Social Security, Medicare, discretionary spending, all of it combined was $3.5 trillion. This is the new spending that they're talking about doing through a you know 50-50 Senate on reconciliation. Manchin was on the record publicly saying his number was $1 to $2 trillion and only paid for. This is $1.5 trillion above the top end of his range. Sandra, mm-hmm. is there a way conceivably that you can see – that they can actually fully pay for this thing in a way it's tough to predict what Manchin's going to do or say. But let me just put it this way. I am deeply skeptical that they are going to have genuine pay-fors to the tune of $3.5 trillion on top of the pay-fors for the bipartisan agreement on infrastructure. I think what was really telling was that the Congressional Budget Office wouldn't even pass a formal assessment of this. And Joe Manchin said he was waiting on that. He says he hopes the CBO assessment or the score, as it's known, would show that everything's paid for. If not, he said we'll have to make some adjustments. When you hear from these other lawmakers, when they are asked point blank, how do we pay for this? Mark Warner, the Democrat from Virginia, said the measure would be fully paid for with offsetting revenue. But then Guy went on to provide no specific detail. Ah. That's a problem. Bernie Sanders called the agreement a pivotal moment in American history, vowing that, quote, the wealthy and large corporations are going to start paying their fair share of taxes. I think we've heard that before. So well, and and apparently, this country. apparently they're throwing some immigration reform stuff into this package as well. I mean, that might not survive reconciliation with the parliamentarian, but they are just going for it. I think Republicans might want to keep their fingerprints off of any of this if they're going to go four plus trillion. It's insane, especially with the specter of inflation, of inflation rather looming. Sandra Smith on America Reports. I'll see you in studio on Friday. It's the Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fresh conservative talk. Guy Benson Show. Living the Bream is a podcast hosted by Fox News Channel's Shannon Bream, sharing inspirational stories, personal anecdotes, and an insider's perspective on actions and rulings from the high court. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. I'm Guy Benson. We're back from New York City. Thanks for listening. It's the Guy Benson Show. And joining me now from Chicago, my old stomping grounds, is our colleague and friend Matt Finn, national correspondent for Fox News Channel, who is reporting on the Jussie Smollett trial. And Matt, do you have any sense of deja vu? I feel like we've done this before. I told my crew we're going back to the courthouse today. We've done this a thousand times. So yes, I do, guy. (laughs) So if people are maybe, and they can be forgiven, for not remembering every little detail of this, and they might be wondering, oh yeah, Jesse Smollett, something about an alleged hate crime, and then he was charged with lying. What's the background? This was like more than two years ago at this point, right? Yes. Uh, The background is back in 2019, Jesse Smollett alleged he was the victim of a hate crime at the hand of MAGA supporters uh, on the streets of Chicago during brutal cold. Uh, They say, or Smollett says that he he had a noose placed around his neck, that he was attacked. Okay, so then uh, there was this thorough investigation. All this, uh, all these resources poured into it from the city and police, and ultimately, police decided that Smollett was lying. 
He was charged with 16 counts of lying to police, a felony disorderly conduct. Okay, so the world's eyes are on this actor who claims that he was beaten basically by Trump supporters in Chicago. Then, all of a sudden, the charges are dropped by Kim Fox, uh, the Cook County uh, lead prosecutor. Uh, and everyone says, wait, wait, what happened? And Fox says that she entered into agreement with him, forfeit your $10,000 bond, do some community service, and we'll suddenly drop these charges, right? So people were up in arms about it. How could that happen? There was so much overtime, so much attention paid on this hate crime. How dare he claim that he's the victim of a, a hate crime? Then, a, oh, then about last year, a special prosecutor was assigned. The special prosecutor ultimately determined that Jesse Smollett did lie to police uh, and that he uh, was worthy of being charged of this disorderly conduct. So the special prosecutor um, uh, suggested that Jesse Smollett be recharged. A grand jury agreed. Jesse Smollett has now been recharged with six counts of felony disorderly conduct of lying to police. What's happening today in court here in Chicago is a judge is listening to both sides uh, on whether Jesse Smollett can keep his current attorney, as if there aren't enough layers to this story. <laughs> Jesse Smollett's current attorney, Nene Yuchi, uh, the two Osendario brothers who claim that Jesse Smollett paid them to beat him in that alleged fake crime. Well, they have a check, so right? Osendario- they have some proof. Yes. Oh, yes. There's, there's, there's text messages. There, there's lots of evidence that has been presented from investigators. They say that they also consulted with Jesse Smollett's attorney. So now there's a conflict of interest because Jesse Smollett's own attorney has perhaps some confidential information on them. So they're in court right now. The two of them just testified saying that Jesse Smollett's lead attorney, Nene Yuji, needs to be dropped. Uh, Jesse Smollett's attorney tells me that's not the case. He says, I only ever talked to the Osendaro brothers' mother. I never had, you know, confidential uh, conversations with the brothers. So we'll see what happens. Uh, you know, whether or not Jesse Smollett loses his, his lead attorney today, this case, important, is moving forward. There is a new criminal case against Jesse Smollett, the six counts of lying to police. You know, ultimately, if he is found guilty, that would bring justice in the eyes of many people here in Chicago and around the world. Yeah, because I remember Chicagoans were ticked off. Many Americans were upset. Of course, Trump supporters saw this as an attempt by Jesse Smollett to smear them broadly with this cockamamie, ridiculous story. When the details came out, instantly my radar went up, said, now this seems a little ripe. I was very dubious from the get-go. And as the whole story unraveled, it almost did so in a comical way. It was that ham-fisted, ham-handed, embarrassing. But Smollett has maintained the whole time, even with all the evidence that's been compiled to prove that this was a crock, that this was a self-victimization, whether it was for money, to get a pay raise, for attention, to attack people politically, or all of the above. I think it might be a little bit of all of it. He did these things, in my view. I think the evidence can prove that, but you were calling back to that very odd deal that was struck at the time with the county attorney, which sat well with very few people. The police were furious. The mayor, if I recall correctly, was furious because Chicago was dragged through the mud and, you know, like, oh, look at this horrible hate crime that was committed in our streets. And it looks very much like that was a lie, that that was a smear, that that was a hoax. And finally, the special counsel, the special prosecutor who intervened said, yeah, this thing really does need to move forward with a real trial. They ripped up the agreement effectively. The new trial on the six counts, when would that start once this attorney matter gets cleared up, Matt? 
I talked to attorneys on both sides. They say the judge is zealous to get this trial on the calendar soon this year. Also, I talked to Justice Smollett as he walked into this courthouse a few hours ago. He says he is innocent and that this is, quote, a dog and pony show. <laughs> Maintains his innocence. Well, that would be very on brand for him, having very low regard and contempt for this entire system. He insulted it with his hoax that he tried to perpetrate, and he's insulting it again. Dog and pony show. I'm not sure if that's the type of quote that I would want the judge to be reading if I were his attorney, but I guess he's deciding to say what he wants to say, and it's a free country, and we'll see if he remains a free man. Hopefully some justice is served here. That's my view of it. And Matt, you'll be covering it as you have, as we said, for more than two years. It would be great to get some closure. One more step along the way there today in Chicago. Matt, we appreciate it. Thank you, Guy. Matt Finn in Chicago on The Guy Benson Show. We'll be right back. Fox Nation presents podcasts, Women of the Bible Speak. I'm Shannon Bream, host of Fox News at Night and author of the new book, Women of the Bible Speak, the wisdom of 16 women and their lessons for today. Subscribe now on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, foxnewspodcast.com, or wherever you download your podcasts. The Guy Benson Show. Back here on The Guy Benson Show. Glad to have you with us, broadcasting from New York City for the next couple shows. I'm on Gutfeld's panel tonight, 11 p.m. Eastern Time, Fox News Channel. Joining me now is Mary Anastasia O'Grady, an opinion columnist at the Wall Street Journal. Her beat is Latin America, and of course, so much of the news right now is focused on Cuba. We quoted from her most recent column on Monday's show. Mary, it's good to have you back. Thanks for having me, Guy. Our pleasure. So let's just start here. What is the current status to the best of your knowledge about what's happening in Cuba? Because we're seeing some videos leaking of people getting snatched and beaten in their homes, in the streets. Are the protests quelled at this point? Are they ongoing? What can you tell us? Well, I mean, I think that what we know unequivocally is that the government is using everything it has to put this thing down. And that includes you know, uh, plainclothes, um, paramilitary. It includes, uh, you know, state security agents, very well-trained uh, police who basically train their whole lives for this kind of an event, um, military. Uh, and they're going after people. I mean, there are people on the ground in Cuba tweeting about <clears throat> these uh, government forces using baseball bats, batons, um, you know, just pummeling people. Uh, but there are also um, video of people being shot in the streets in Havana. Uh, I mean, um, officials shooting at protesters. Um, the actual death toll, I don't I don't have a good number on that. I think they're reporting one person has died. Uh, but a lot of people being rounded up. I mean, there's one source in in uh, Havana, a very good uh, journalist, very well-renowned journalist, has a website called Catorce uh, Medio, and uh, she says that the arrests uh, are more than 5,000, that people have been, as you said, taken out of their homes, but they've also been grabbed on the streets. And uh, so it's it's quite an aggressive uh, move. And, and that's not at all surprising because this is probably – the largest uh, spontaneous apolitical um, 
I mean, this is not a politically organized uprising. This is just people fed up and coming out and joining and speaking out in ways that I think you could say is unprecedented in the sense that it's island wide and it's large numbers. We quoted from your Wall Street Journal piece on Monday. It's spontaneous. It's organic. But there were some triggering factors, right? Some catalysts here. Talk about those briefly. Well, I mean, the the whole thing started in the western on the western side of the island at a place called San Antonio de los Baños, and um, but the the thing that made it a lot different was is the is the use of technology. I mean, people have cell phones. There's some internet on the island, and this spread. I think that you know what you're getting at there, which I think is really true, is that um, there was. I mean, it didn't. It wasn't like on Sunday morning people got up and said, this really doesn't um, work for me. <laughs> mm-hmm. I mean, this sort of discontent, popular discontent has been brewing for a long time. Um, but I think that the the fact that it was able to spread this way really had to do with technology. And the other thing that I think is really interesting um, is that, you know, it's hard for people outside of Cuba to understand what an intensely repressive police state this is. It's really intense. I mean, you know, you have to go to some uh, countries in the Soviet Union to actually see probably Russia itself to see the intensity of the repression. And what that does, it creates in people a kind of a, a self-censorship where they don't speak because they know that if you speak, you lose your job, your child loses their place in school, you'll be ostracized, you won't get any food. I mean, they're, so they're really conditioned. <clears throat> and there's a, a saying in Cuba that there's a policeman in your head. And so you do not speak. And somehow in this event, people blurted out how they felt and all of a sudden realized that the guy right next door to them feels the same way. And I think that's what makes what's happening in Cuba different, which does not say that this will not be put down. But Cuba, I think, is forever changed. What can the United States do? What should the United States do? Because I know a lot of our politicians and people have been speaking out in solidarity and making comments publicly. I'm not sure how much of that seeps into Cuba, how much the Cuban people are able to understand how much support they have here in the United States. But when it comes to government action, whether it's helping maintain Internet access for people, I mean, there are a few options potentially on the table. What do you think would be prudent and what do you think would be realistic? Well, there's a long tradition in the international community of, um, you know, holding um, repressive in, individuals and repressive governments accountable. I mean, you know, if we go back to the Nazis, the leadership there was held accountable after the war was over. And I think that the United States should, you know, work in a coalition with international governments to say, you know, these people are going to be held accountable, not just that they're going to be sanctioned right now, but there are long-term consequences for crimes against humanity. And if you participate in this, we're going to be taking names. And those names are going to remain on our list, and there's going to be accountability for that. That's one thing. The second thing is Cuba has been asking for a long time, um, off and on. I mean, I wrote about in 2008, uh, very bad hurricanes hit the island. And again, with the COVID virus, they say, well, we, we want humanitarian aid from the U.S. government. But they want our government to send aid to the regime 
which then they will dole out as little rewards for people who behave. And I think the U.S. should speak very loudly with a megaphone around the world saying, we are happy, we want to give humanitarian aid to the Cuban people, but we want a humanitarian corridor in which that aid can be taken from uh, either the U.S. government or from, um, uh, you know, charitable organizations, right, and it can be brought to the people of Cuba. And, of course, uh, you know, as I mentioned in my column on Monday, Cuba refuses to participate in that. I mean, what does that tell you about how evil this government is? They And they did the same thing in 2008, and they keep repeating that until the embargo is lifted, which, I mean, the only thing really that harms them with the embargo is that they can't get credit from the United States. I mean, would you give credit to somebody who is basically a deadbeat who has defaulted on <clears throat> hundreds of millions of dollars of debt. I mean, they owe the Europeans. They owe they owed Russia. They, they just had to renegotiate their Paris Club. They don't pay people back. Why should we lend the money from the U.S.? I mean, basically the U.S. banking system. They want private credit. And that's what they're mad about. When they complain about the embargo, it's not that they can't get food or medicine. They can buy everything they want, either from us or from the rest of the world. But they have to pay cash if they come and buy from us. And they don't like that. And I'll tell you one other thing they don't like. They don't like the fact that they are not in the World Bank and they're not in the IMF. So when the IMF, for example, creates this new money, I don't know if you've been following that, but they're, they're basically doing a whole new round of aid out of the IMF. And they are not able to get their snout in the trough for that money. And it makes them mad. That's the problem. When they complain about the embargo, that's what they're complaining about. They, they have access to everything else. They could buy stuff. I mean, they're only going to hurt Mexico. their case further, you would think, right? Any progress that they think that they're making, if they're going to be cracking heads in the street because people just decide to well, speak I, out. You know, I, I think that's a good point that the, you know, they have controlled the narrative for so many years. And I think technology is going to make that more and more difficult. Now, you know, the Venezuelans haven't minded at all. Maduro has not minded at all shooting at students in the street. And, you know, they put down that, uh, the, the multiple rebellions in Venezuela. Which seemed and much bigger the way, than the Cuban one, by the way. Well, they were trained, they were, the, 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 the Venezuelan uh, state security was trained by the Cubans. The difference is that, you know, by now, after 60 years, the Cubans don't have any resources. They don't have guns. They don't have food. They don't have medicine. I mean, they are really flat on their back. And they're they pretty are, beaten they down. They are really like slaves. They are literally like slaves. No, it's, it's so sad. And but it's, it's inspiring so, to see some people taking the risk anyway, knowing what the consequences could be. Now, Mary, I do want to get re your reaction to a soundbite. This is from the Secretary of Homeland Security in the Biden administration, Alejandro Mayorkas, whose family escaped Cuba. He had a message, not just for Cubans, but for Haitians who might consider getting on rickety boats and trying to come to America amid a lot of unrest in both of those countries and instability. Here's what he said, cut 10. Allow me to be clear. If you take to the sea, you will not come to the United States. Migrants who do attempt to enter the United States by sea put their lives at incredible risk. I repeat, do not risk your life attempting to enter the United States illegally. You will not come to the United States. And then he said, 
in a follow-up that you could be repatriated to other countries, but you won't be able to stay here. Now, I've also seen some tweets from Senator Marco Rubio, who's as pro-freedom in Cuba as you can get, very conservative. And he's also been saying that the Biden administration should make clear that a mass migration event that would be precipitated by the regime should be treated as an act of hostility or war. So I'm sort of trying to figure out exactly what the politics are here, because I think a lot of Americans and people listening right now would say, well, hang on. The Biden administration has sounded very welcoming to refugees or potential refugees really from all over the world in Latin America. But this is particularly harsh rhetoric against people who might truly fit the definition of refugees. Why would that be? And if it's some political theory about how the Democrats don't want more conservative anti-communist people coming to Florida for political reasons, how does that explain what Rubio has been tweeting? I'm not exactly clear on those dynamics. Well, you know, it's interesting you bring that up because I was noticing some conservatives complaining about that on on the in the in social media this morning. I, I think um, Marco Rubio, Senator Rubio, and the president, uh, the administration is right in in the following sense: um, the 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 um, Castro regime for six decades has used rafter crises to as a destabilizing event. Um, that they then, once, you know, you have uh, tens of thousands of people arriving in Florida, it's very destabilizing. All of a sudden, you know, they're walking up on beaches, and and they've used that as a negotiating tactic. You know, we'll stop the, the people from coming if you give us X, Y, and Z. And, by the way, this is something that was done, I mean, I'm sure you're familiar with the Marielle boat lift in 1980, uh, and then in 94, there was a right rafter crisis that President Clinton confronted. And that's when he changed. And, and in my opinion, it was a bad idea. But he was uh, he, he was thinking of his own political interests. But he changed the rule that had been if a Cuban is, you know, found at sea, we'll take them. And Clinton changed the rule to something called wet foot, dry foot, which is that if you could get to land, uh, to the Key West or, you know, some U.S. island down there, uh, you would be considered safe. But if you were caught at sea, you would be repatriated. Um, the reason for that was because Castro wanted to stop people from running away. And this was a, um, uh, a, a, a compromise that Clinton made. But he also— Why wouldn't—just um, just to jump in, why wouldn't we welcome them? I mean, because especially if you look at a lot of the Democratic rhetoric around refugees or alleged— refugees, yeah, right? People I, saying that they they want to come to the country and we want to welcome people who are being persecuted. We know that a lot of those claims are dubious, but from Cuba, it seems like a pretty clear case of widespread repression, at least under the Democrats' own standards. Why wouldn't we welcome well, anyone who the, wants okay, to escape Cuba into the United one States? Of, one of the things that Clinton did was, it, because of the wet foot, dry foot, he also uh, created a lottery where t- every year 20,000 Cubans could enter a lottery and might get a visa to the U.S. So, in other words, we would be taking 20,000 every year instead of um, having them, you know, try to escape in in this way. Um, so, I I think, you know, let's put aside the way they're handling the border crisis in Mexico, which in some ways maybe you can't because, uh, you know, if they're letting people in there, but they're not, uh, you know, helping Cubans get in, that does seem uh, tendentious. But I would say that... Um, if you look back at the history of these rafter crises, they're very destabilizing. There's a lot of suffering. We do not want, Guy, we do not want a rafter crisis. 
We do not want that. It's it's um, you know, it's 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 horrible uh, for everybody involved. It's Got horrible it. for the Cubans. OK, you yeah, know, I, for- I think that's fair. And I think that if you look at the policy discreetly on its own, that makes sense when you marry it or juxtapose it with the rhetoric and the policy and the posture of the Democrats at the border, it starts to make a lot less sense or it seems more confusing. And that's a conversation we'll have to continue. Mary Anastasia O'Grady, columnist at The Wall Street Journal. We appreciate your insights. Thank you. Sure. Thanks, Guy. Nice to be with you. We'll be right back after this. The Guy Benson Show. More next. It's the Hammer Time Podcast. Fox News Channel's Bill Hammer takes you one-on-one with engaging personalities covering the critical issues of the day. Find Hammer Time now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. America's listening to Fox News. Back on the Guy Benson Show, since we're talking about evil regimes, anti-American regimes, this story is astonishing. It broke yesterday. I saw it all over my social media feeds. New York Times with the headline, Iranian operatives plan to kidnap a Brooklyn author, prosecutors say. An Iranian-American journalist living in Brooklyn, who's been a sharp critic of the Iranian government, was the target of an international kidnapping plot orchestrated by an intelligence network in Iran, according to federal prosecutors. In an indictment unsealed in federal court in Manhattan, four Iranians were charged with conspiring to kidnap the journalist and author. Her name is Masi Alinejad. I actually happen to follow her on Twitter. She is a tireless advocate for freedom and human rights, especially for women in Iran. And she's a thorn in the side of that regime by just telling the truth about them. And I've always thought that's very brave. Right When you go up against a force that evil, there might be blowback, but she lives here in America. She's an American citizen. But apparently, Iran is so angry about her truth-telling that they were plotting to kidnap her, potentially here on U.S. soil, an American citizen, put her on a boat, like a military-grade speedboat, and take her to Venezuela— where she would then be rendered from Venezuela and flown to Iran, presumably for execution. Because that's what they do to people like her in that regime. Right across the bridge here from where I sit in Brooklyn, that's where she lives. She's been put under police protection. These indictments have been unsealed. This is what Iran is trying to do on our soil to our citizen. Because of what she is saying and exposing about them, it is outrageous. It is brazen. I have a friend who's an Iranian dissident. He said that they are afraid. They get threats here in America. He said the regime is emboldened by the new administration, which is just a continuation of the Obama administration when it comes to Iran. They are obsessed with getting a nuclear deal with these people, no matter what it takes, giving away the store. The Iranians think they can get away with almost anything, and they're willing to push the envelope. And clearly, I mean, this is about as brazen as it gets. In case you're curious, the White House said today that they are full steam ahead on the negotiations with Iran on the nuclear stuff. And the State Department put out a little statement saying, oh, this is a law enforcement matter. Oh, this is a law enforcement matter. Talk to DOJ. No, this is an egregious affront. The administration, the whole country needs to treat it as such. 
It's important to view Iran with clear eyes. This administration, like the previous Democratic administration, does not. Final hour of The Guy Benson Show. Coming up. From the Fox News Podcasts Network, download and listen to The Untold Story with Martha McCallum. The host of The Story on Fox News Channel sits down with major newsmakers each week to get their untold story. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. It's 5 o'clock in the most powerful city in the world, Washington, D.C. It's time for the Guy Benson Show Happy Hour, sponsored by the Finnish Long Drink. Finland's most popular alcoholic beverage has come to America. Visit thelongdrink.com. And now, here's your host, Guy Benson. Happy hour on this Wednesday. It's the Guy Benson Show coming to you from New York City. I'll be on with Greg Gutfeld on his show, Gutfeld! Tonight at 11 p.m. Eastern Time Fox News Channel. Here at the radio show, it's GuyBensonShow.com. That's our online home. You can listen for free as we air all across the country on our affiliates. A lot of different ways to listen live at GuyBensonShow.com. Same website for the free podcast or foxnewspodcast.com, or really wherever you get your free podcasts. Lots of options there. And this hour is sponsored in part by the Finnish Long Drink. Really good. I talk about its crispness, its refreshing taste. You should try it for yourself. Many of you are, and I hear from you almost every day. There's been an inundation recently of new converts to the Long Drink. You can go to thelongdrink.com, see where it's sold near you, or order online. TheLongDrink.com, 21 plus only, and please drink responsibly. As we begin our final hour, this happy hour, I want to go through a few examples that probably fall under the category of woke tales. Woke tales. So Barry Weiss, former New York Times editor, has really done a lot of important work on this front. And she seems to find some of the most Shocking examples of cancel culture or wokeness run amok. And it's not just rolling your eyes at nonsense, like, you know, the Chick-fil-A story on a college campus. No, these are actual consequences for people whose lives or careers are ruined for no good reason. For a failure to bow down to the church of wokeness. And that's what it is, a very disturbing, demented religion on the secular left, almost exclusively. So Barry Weiss has this new story out called A Witch Trial at the Legal Aid Society. She writes about a woman named Maud Marone, who she calls a model public defender who was forced out of her job because of her political views and her race. Here's how it begins. If you Google bleeding heart liberal, Maude Marone might well turn up as the first hit. Every cause liberals are supposed to fight for, every group they're supposed to champion, every candidate they're supposed to support, well, that was Marone's. Not so atypical life and career until recently. So she is, this woman, a very progressive Democrat. She worked for the Legal Aid Society, providing representation to people who are indigent, who can't afford lawyers. She was a clinic walker at abortion clinics, which I actually find repugnant, but 
That was her view, and she believed in it so strongly that she would accompany women into clinics. Right? She's passionate, I guess, about abortion, something on which she and I would profoundly disagree. She donated repeatedly to Bernie Sanders' campaign. Right? This is a left winger who devoted her life, at least professionally, to defending criminal suspects, criminal defendants in court. So no one is going to mistake this woman for a conservative or a right winger. In short, writes Barry Weiss, Marone is exactly the kind of lawyer you'd imagine legal aid would put on the cover of its brochures. But today, this is earlier in the week, the public defender is filing suit in the Southern District of New York against the organization to which she has dedicated her career. The suit claims that Moran was, quote, discriminated against on the basis of race by her employer, Legal Aid Society, and her union, the Association of Legal Aid Attorneys. It claims that both defendants, quote, published knowingly false statements in furtherance of ideological and political motives divorced from the core functions of Ms. Marone's employment. It says she was forced out of her job because of her political views and her race, which the suit says is a violation of her civil rights. They're quoting Marone here. None of this would have happened if I just said I loved books like White Fragility, and I'm a fan of Bill de Blasio's proposals for changing New York City public schools, and I plan to vote for Maya Wiley for mayor. The reason they went after me is because I have a different point of view, she said. So because she is not on board with critical race theory, or whatever you want to call it, the racialization of education through indoctrination, because she's not so quote-unquote progressive that she's willing to embrace the ruin of charter schools or some of the public schools in New York that require or required merit-based criteria to get in, right? A lot of people in the name of equity are destroying that, and this woman, Ms. Marone, was against that because she was appalled by such a fixation on race, especially being pounded into the heads of children, For those reasons, all of her other work, her entire life, her entire career, her extracurricular activities in the liberal left, none of that mattered anymore. Doesn't matter that she loved Bernie. Doesn't matter that she was a fanatical supporter of abortion. Doesn't matter that she took her skills as an attorney and used them for legal aid clients for her whole career for years. Didn't matter. The trouble began, back to the Barry Weiss piece, in late 2019 when Moran's boss, Tina Luongo, informed her she was being investigated following a complaint from members of the black attorneys of the Legal Aid Caucus and attorneys of color legal aid. So there's all sorts of different groups, subsidiaries, race-based groups within this larger organization. Quote, I knew the accusations were baseless, Marone said. It had everything to do with them deeming me an enemy of their politics and trying to go after me at work. A former colleague of Marone said it was McCarthyism. That's the only word to describe it. Like others I spoke to, writes Barry Weiss, this lawyer requested anonymity out of fear of professional repercussions. After an investigation that entailed reviewing all her case files and interviewing her direct supervisors, which the lawsuit details, Marone was cleared in January 2020. If she were someone else, a little more politically astute, maybe less principled, she might have understood that the episode was a warning to shut up. But on July 23rd, 2020, 
She published an op-ed in the New York Post under the headline, Racial Obsessions Make It Impossible for New York City Schools to Treat Parents and Kids as People. So she described in this op-ed how she's a mom and a public defender, an elected public school council member. And now I'm quoting, but at a city department of education anti-bias training, I was instructed to refer to myself as a white woman, as if my whole life reduces to my race. Those who oppose this ideology are shunned and humiliated, even as it does nothing to actually improve our broken schools. Though facing severe budget cuts, the Department of Education has spent more than $6 million for the training, which defines qualities such as worship of the written word, individualism, and objectivity as, quote, white supremacy culture. So Barry Weiss says this is when things really blew up for this woman at work. Days after the piece was published, the black attorneys of legal aid put together a lengthy statement saying that, quote, Maude Marone has no business having a career in public defense and we're ashamed that she works the legal aid society. It declared, quote, Maude is racist and openly so, offering no evidence to back up the charge. It said that this veteran public defender was, quote, a prominent opponent of equality and a classic example of what 21st century racism looks like. The statement said that she is, quote, one of many charlatans who took this job not out of a desire to make a difference, but for purposes of self-imaging. She pretends to favor integration while fighting against it and denying the existence of racism in education. They also say she was terrible at her job and just a racist. Now, Barry Weiss spoke to many people involved who've known her for years, who've worked with her, and they say she was absolutely terrific. She was a top flight lawyer. A great colleague, a friend, again, doing exactly what you would think the public defender's office or legal aid, rather, would want one of their lawyers to do. But that's not what happened. Instead, she was attacked consistently in these statements, in public tweets and other posts. One colleague posting publicly, racist, don't belong on the city council, school boards, or in public defender's offices. This colleague said, pathetic racist Maude Marone is using her public defender status in an attempt to legitimize her segregationist platform. Four of Marone's colleagues wrote a piece in Gotham Magazine accusing her of segregation activism, whatever that means, and compared her to the white mobs that opposed the Little Rock Nine. Barry Weiss spoke with another person who used to work at Legal Aid. Quote, it was becoming intolerable. We talked about all this behind closed doors because you can't talk about it with doors open. It's an oppressive environment for anyone who isn't radical, including, by the way, those attorneys of color who don't share the lunatic views like abolishing the police or saying that it's necessarily racist to arrest people for misdemeanor crimes. So many of us have sat through trainings and listened to equity consultants say things we knew were not true, but it's easier to keep silent and discuss the absurdities in confidence with trusted colleagues and friends than to speak up or object in front of everyone. This is Marone. The bill for that silence is coming due now. A former colleague says, I was embarrassed that I didn't stand up for her, but I was scared. Everybody is scared of that label, meaning racist or segregationist or whatever they're going to say. Now, I highlight this story because it's yet another example of the revolution eating its own. This is not some right winger who said something that might be borderline offensive but not fireable, this is a dyed-in-the-wool lefty, a committed ideological progressive who doesn't agree with the crazy race stuff. 
She doesn't agree with the indoctrination or telling white people, including students, that they are bad, that this is a white supremacist mentality that they're steeped in. She doesn't like that. She doesn't feel like some of these plans for schools are fair or good or moral. And she said so publicly. And for that sin, all of her other work that she had done for all of the causes that these people say they believe in was thrown out the window in a flash, in a heartbeat by her colleagues who instantly labeled her a racist and have been agitating against her as retribution, had nothing to do with her job performance, is because she was a white person who didn't agree with every single radical, racialized insanity, every piece of that program that they insist upon and want to enforce and inflict on everyone. So she was seen as a heretic and she was hounded out of this job. The revolution eats its own. And unfortunately, this is not just one cherry-picked weird example. This is a pattern. This is why we talk about it so often. My hope is that people like Maude Marone will be shaken from their ideological, in some respects, slumber, or recognize maybe my side isn't really my side. Or at least try to reform what's happening on the left, because if this crowd wins, it's over for the American experiment. But we are determined that they not win. I have a few more examples not related to this story, two other quick stories that I want to draw to your attention along the woke tales theme. I'll get to them as soon as we come back. It's the happy hour on the Guy Benson show. Guy Benson will be right back. New from the Fox News Podcasts Network. My name is Kennedy, and welcome to my podcast, which will, I humbly say, single-handedly save the world. You're welcome. It's Kennedy Saves the World. Subscribe and listen now by going to foxnewspodcasts.com. Back here on the happy hour, we're continuing on this theme of wokeness. And we kicked it off in the previous segment. Two more examples. There was a letter of resignation published publicly by Cornell West left-wing professor. He's at Harvard. So he wrote his letter to the Harvard dean where he just blasted his experience. And he had, for a number of reasons, complaints against Harvard, including his remuneration. He felt like he wasn't compensated enough. He got into some of that. He also made the point, which seemed to hurt him, that when in the newsletter it was announced that his mother had passed away. He got very few comments of sympathy from his colleagues. In fact, he said he got two public replies, one of which was from a colleague who received no replies when her mother died. But he writes, any ordinary announcement about a lecture, an award, or a professional advancement receives dozens of replies. Now, that's not necessarily an indication of wokeness or whatever. This is just perhaps an indication that there are people at Harvard in the ivory tower who I think would definitely consider themselves to be much better people than most of us, certainly on the right. Cornell West is not on the right by any stretch, but these are, in many cases, arrogant, condescending, self-righteous people. And he's just noting that I guess the priority is if you get some academic or professional accolade, then the kudos come flying in. If your parent dies, people can't really be bothered to say much of anything. That may not be a reflection on anything other than the fact 
that may not be an indication of really much of anything other than the fact that maybe he works with a lot of jerks with bad priorities at the Divinity School, by the way, at Harvard. But there was one line that stuck out to me that does tie into the theme. He writes as he leaves Harvard in a blaze of glory, with a few glorious and glaring exceptions, the shadow of Jim Crow was cast in its new glittering form expressed in the language of superficial diversity. Now, there's probably some interesting things to explore there on the subject of superficial diversity. I might actually agree to some extent with that. But for Cornell West to throw the grenade at Harvard, saying that Harvard is really living now in the shadow of Jim Crow, this is how arguments and scores are settled now on the left. This is the ultimate attack. And the problem is when you start calling everything racist and Jim Crow and white supremacy, it waters down the evil reality and over applies it to the point that we all just roll our eyes. It is absurd to pretend that Harvard University is engaged in anything close to conduct or policies that would justify the invocation of Jim Crow. And yet that is done at the drop of a hat all the time. It's like they don't know how to argue any other way. And Cornell West actually does. He's got a very close friend at Princeton, Robert George, who's a conservative. They do this all the time. They talk about better discourse, but the temptation is awfully strong, obviously. Last story quickly out of Charlottesville, Virginia. They've been pulling out some Confederate statues. I'm not necessarily opposed to that. Right? They were traitors to the country. We don't have to glorify in the public square treason. Maybe move these statues to Civil War museums or something. Fine. The problem is the mission creep. When they start coming after, we've talked about in the past, the founding fathers, Washington, Jefferson, the list goes on. Well, in Charlottesville, Virginia, they've gotten rid of a statue of Lewis and Clark and Sacagawea, the explorers and the Native American figure. They did this in an emergency session of the city council. Emergency. It was an emergency to take down statues of Lewis, Clark, and Sacagawea, an emergency session. And these were not new statues. That's one of the objections that we hear. They had stood on West Main Street in Charlottesville for more than a century. But now we have an emergency session to get rid of them at a cost of $1 million because they never just stop with the one thing. And that's why so many people are suspicious of what might seem like a good intention start, it keeps growing and growing and they never stop. The rapacious wokes never stop. But neither do we. As long as I have a platform, I'm going to fight them every single day if it takes it. And the Guy Benson Show returns right after this. GuyBensonShow.com It's the happy hour here on The Guy Benson Show. I'm in New York and I had the privilege earlier today to sit in studio with our colleague Harris Faulkner anchor of the Faulkner Focus, co-host of Outnumbered. We talked about a host of different issues. Here's part of our conversation. And I'm curious what your thoughts are, because I made this point yesterday and I saw Senator McConnell made this point today on the Senate floor, but it feels a little He's bit... on the Faulkner Focus tomorrow, we just found out. Oh, really? Yeah. Well, he's always a good get. He is. He's extremely thoughtful. He's not exactly a bonanza of excitement. He can way. be. His first visit, it was something he cared about. And he's he's, very candid. And when he's fired up, you can tell it's simmering. It's slightly below the surface. But he gave the speech today, and I made a point yesterday. 
But I feel to some extent I can make the case. I think it's the right thing to say. I have every right as an American, regardless of what I look like, to make these points. Mm -hmm. But when I hear any of the Democrats or let's say the president of the United States over and over and over again invoke Jim Crow. Yeah. When having these disputes over voting laws and drop boxes and the number of hours being in some cases expanded but not the way they want, voter ID, whatever, Jim Crow and that era – and we saw the legislators from Texas singing We Shall Overcome yesterday in Washington, D.C. That song had and has power. Yeah. Jim Crow means – In the right context. Right. It means something. Yeah. Yeah. And I just think it's incredibly insulting and and deeply cheapens something that should not be cheapened when you have leaders doing this from backbenchers from Austin, Texas to the president of the United States. As a black woman, I And I wonder, can't be anything else. Not at this moment. <laughs> at this moment, because you can make points that I maybe can't. I just wonder how that strikes you, setting aside your own personal or anyone's personal politics, the invocation – of that period in time and that example and that crucible in our history to make political points today. You ask questions like no one I know. Uh, that has all shades of perspective and context that are spot on. And the reason why you don't like it, no matter what race, ethnicity, age group, whatever your demographics are, is because you don't like to be pandered to. And you don't want that for anybody else. Because that's not true freedom. True freedom is you're free to express and be who you are as long as it doesn't hurt anybody else. I hope you get there. Pandering to someone is a, is a statement about control. They've figured out what they think you need and what they think you want. Joe Biden candidate. If you don't vote for me and you're black, you're not really black. Mm -hmm. Did I make that up? No, no. You ain't black, I believe was the quote. You ain't black. Yeah. Said it on the radio. Who? Charlemagne the God didn't even warm to it, and he's supposed to be on that side of the aisle as a fan. He's like, what? I know. It was like a 1960s or 70s um, moment with a DJ. Yeah. The needle stuck on the record. Most listeners don't know what a record is. Um, so young. But, you know, when I look at the subject now, I remember the signs that were up in the background of pictures my mom had of me as a baby, and you couldn't really see, they were out of focus, but she later life, later in life would tell me those signs said coloreds only. I was born in 1965. I'm the double nickel. Don't rack your brain doing the math. My dad was fighting a war for this country. He carried a little replica of the flag next to his heart underneath his fatigues. He was a combat pilot watching his friends and, and comrades die on a daily basis in Vietnam. And when relatives would ask him, how can you go and fight for this country when you can't even go drink out of the water fountain you want? My father would say, because this is America, and she's special. And the most potential of any place on the planet. And I'm an American before I'm anything else. I'm going to stick with America through the struggle, however mighty it may be, because she's worth the struggle. I was raised by a real patriot. Didn't even have 100% of the freedom, only had some of what they had to offer here, and that was enough to go to war for, to fight here for, to do whatever he needed to do. And the, the struggle that you referenced then. The civil rights. Which has, that struggle was won. 
right? Yeah. Not perfectly, but it was overwhelmingly There is no perfection. One. There are human beings involved. But you talk about Jim Crow and you talk about those signs and, and not just the era where they segregated us, but Jim Crow was particularly a violent time in this nation. Look, there's still people who don't like the fact that everybody's getting a seat at the table. I, I don't know what to say about that. But America is not a racist country. There, there's so many good people. And there's so many good people who have the ability and the love in their hearts to sit with the people who aren't quite there yet to say, you know what, I'm going to stick with you anyway because I know we're going to get there. That was my dad, that was my mom, and that's who I feel I am. And I think it's harder to do that if you have leaders who are trying to equate that struggle— They're manipulating the situation. —with what is happening today. Well, and it's not for your best interest or mine or any American's best interest. It's for their own. So why do they take off? By the way, I have 11 cousins in Texas. So they're spending that taxpayer money, and I'm getting text messages every day from my sister. My full interview with Harris Faulkner available online as always, GuyBensonShow.com. The entire show is on our free podcast. It's on demand, no charge. You can download individual episodes or subscribe. GuyBensonShow.com, FoxNewsPodcast.com, or wherever you get your free podcasts. When we come back, the home stretch, if it's a home stretch, and I'm here with Max and Wyatt in New York, we're going to talk about a stupid food thing, and that stupid food thing is coming right up. For the full interview and more, go to GuyBensonShow.com. Home stretch on the Guy Benson Show. Glad to be in the Big Apple. In fact, last night I got in relatively late, got to the hotel, checked in, and I have a meeting later tonight, a business dinner. Just some people want to talk. It's sort of a political project. And they had said, oh, can you meet us at this time at this restaurant? And it worked with my schedule, so I said, great. So that's later tonight, Wednesday. Last night, I looked at my calendar. I said, oh, yeah, I've got this dinner. I hadn't forgotten about it, but I hadn't really looked into it very much. And I just decided that I was going to check out the restaurant. And part of the background here is taking the train up from D.C. yesterday, I had dinner, if you can call it that, of a salad. I decided to be good. I got a salad with like a healthier dressing. And I mean, it got the job done. It wasn't terribly filling though. And it was kind of bland. So I was still a little bit hungry and I hadn't had a satisfying meal in a little while. So I'm in bed and it's late. I finished all my work. I'm finally winding down for the night, and I Google this restaurant. And it's a steakhouse here in Midtown. And the reviews were amazing. Like the Yelp stuff was fantastic. Then I made the mistake of going to the website and reading the menu. And they have photos of these dishes, and I'm clicking on every link. I'm looking at the appetizers and then the main courses, and then the dessert menu. There's a cocktail menu. There's a wine list. I'm looking at all of it. And it's probably midnight at this point. And at some point I realized, I'm trying to remember when it was exactly, but they had a lot of 
interesting, slightly different, not just typical steakhouse fare, but plays on things that I hadn't heard of before, but sounded just absolutely delicious. There were so many things I wanted to order. I found my mouth literally watering, right? You talk about mouth-watering food. My mouth was watering intensely in bed. And I looked around, even for a snack. Is there any snack I can have here? Nothing. Because of COVID, they still don't have the mini bars back up and running. So I was able to really satisfy myself with a big gulp of bottled water. And then I went to bed. But here's an item on the menu. Before we get to our other food-related topic, that I want to see what your reaction is, Max. And it's so interesting that I feel like I might need to get it, even though I'm a little skeptical. This is one of the appetizers tonight. Slab bacon, peanut butter, and jalapeno. What? That is pretty bizarre. I never heard of the jalapeno with bacon and peanut butter. I have heard about peanut butter and bacon. I've actually had that at this one place in Queens. Is it good? It works. Like, it's not something I would order, but I don't know. I guess the fat content yeah. counteracts but each other. I don't know like how the, it works. Then but you have the spice. Yeah. Well, that's what I'm interested about because I do love jalapenos. I love all three ingredients. I might, together, uh, I might need weird. to get this. But the problem is then there's this other stuff that sounds fantastic. For example, black truffle lobster toast. You like truffle? Yeah. I despise truffle. What? Yeah. Even when the servers come around with food and there's truffle on it, I like kind of want to gag. Oh, no. Yeah. Oh, I'm so sorry that you're so wrong about this. <laughs> they have another side dish, cr- corn creme brulee. It's not a dessert. So it's kind of like creamed corn, but yeah. but prepared that way. That sounds fantastic. Broccoli and cheese bites. There's just a lot of things here that I want, but then I look at the healthy options. Don't like look at that. Sautéed spinach, green beans. That's probably what I should do, though. Like, I know that's what I should do, especially if I get slab bacon, peanut butter, and jalapeno to start. My body's going to be like, hey, we can stop now. I'm like, oh, no. There's a steak coming. There's dessert coming. But I'm going to have some fresh spinach. And what is that spinach sautéed in? That I don't know. Butter and olive oil? I'm sure. <laughs> and garlic, if I had to guess. And I'm sure mm. it's delicious. But it's healthy because it's green. That's how things work. Okay. So let's talk about this since we're sort of on this subject broadly of interesting food options or offerings. The New York Post, they seem to have this beat covered pretty well. I feel like whenever we hear about this stuff, it's from the New York Post. There was a review, if I recall correctly, of everything bagel ice cream. We talked about that here. Well, here's another one that the New York Post has brought to our attention. Kraft macaroni and cheese flavored ice cream. And so they've got this pint Van Leeuwen, I think, is the brand, and they've paired up apparently with Kraft to make ice cream flavored like that famous boxed mac and cheese, basically usually for children. I guess some adults probably eat it too. The ice cream itself looks good because it's got that – it's got the color almost of pumpkin ice cream, which I really like. Pumpkin ice cream is a seasonal flavor that's fantastic. My problem is I like mac and cheese. I like ice cream. I don't think I want them joined together into one single food product. And also, at the risk of offending some people, I don't really like Kraft mac and cheese. I don't hate it. It's fine. It's sort of a throwback to being a kid. 
But I like like Velveeta and Shells, for example, every day of the week over Kraft. I like that smoothness. I like a different taste of cheese. So if it were another type of mac and cheese flavored ice cream, I might be a little bit more intrigued, but still skeptical. But the fact that it's this particular taste, which I can I can actually imagine it right now. I can taste I can taste it, even though I haven't actually tried it in years. Having that, but just cold and scooped, I'm not really that interested. Agree or disagree? Uh, I agree with you, Guy. Also, a little fun fact about Velveeta. My hometown is the birthplace of Velveeta, Monroe, New York. And we used to have this cheese festival every year. But apparently, I don't know why they stopped it, but now they don't do it anymore. Was it heart disease? <laughs> Probably. Was that the reason? <laughs> no, but a lot of good <laughs> memories at that cheese fest. But that's besides the point. People clutching their chests. <laughs> well, that's one claim to fame. Yeah. The yeah. birthplace of Velveeta. Mm-hmm. So you're a no on this. No. And it was funny because when Wyatt originally brought this up or it was in the group chat text, I didn't look at the picture. So I was like, oh, what is this? Just what are they sprinkling Kraft uh, powder on ice cream? And then I look at it and it says they're partnering with Kraft. Yeah. And this pretty much seems like exactly what it is. Probably just took the powder and mixed it into some vanilla ice cream. No, thank you. Yeah. No. Have you ever had non reheated up? macaroni and cheese the next day oh yeah gross that's so disgusting why would i want even colder macaroni and cheese on ice cream now the only thing that i will say in its potential defense and i said this during the everything bagel version of this as well a friend of ours who went to penn state and they have a famous ice cream place the creamery at penn state he brought for us once a quart i want to say maybe even a gallon of their popcorn flavored ice cream like movie popcorn flavored ice cream and we've talked about this and i thought that sounded disgusting i don't really like movie popcorn again i don't hate it but i didn't want it in my ice cream and then i tried it and there was some white chocolate in there too and it was one of the best ice creams i've ever had and i ate way too much of it extremely fast and it's good that it's not right down the the street for me because i would gain 100 pounds just on that ice cream so i just want to be self-aware that sometimes a weird ice cream flavor will be presented to me and I will say, that sounds gross, I'm not going to like it. And then you try it and you're like, never mind, I was completely wrong. But at least like movie theater popcorn plus white chocolate is on the spectrum of sweet. Like a little bit of salt, but a little bit of sweetness as well. And buttery, that's fine. That, that at least kind of exists in the butter pecan family, if you will. Kraft Mac and cheese ice cream... I don't think so. It's a no-go. It's almost as if they're on a chopped episode and they have to come up with all these different ingredients. <laughs> it's in the box. Yeah, they it's open in the, box. the basket. They're like, what am I going to do with this? And the judge is like, oh my God, they're putting the powder on the ice cream. And they'll be like, well, we love your creativity. This was a brilliant move, but we just didn't love the taste. You've been chopped. That's sort of what I'm imagining here would be my reaction if we were the panel on Chopped. Oh, and we'd be chopping cookie every day. Christine is chopped. We asked her to come on the home stretch here today. Too busy. She asked to come on the show during her vacation. Then we tried to book her, and she's like the hardest get. Her people said no. I think she has Megan answering her calls. My client is busy. My client is inebriated. Allegedly.
That's just hypothetical. I'm speculating, but am I wrong? Am I wrong? Wyatt, thumbs up or thumbs down on this ice cream? Uh, definitely a thumbs down. Okay, so three for three. And if Cookie were here, she'd say, oh, I, I already have a pint in my freezer at home. She might, or she would drive around trying to find it. Remember, she really tried to find the everything bagel ice cream. Nothing ever came of that. You know, there's a lot of loose threads out of these home stretch segments. I think we need to have like an enforcement officer on the show who makes sure that there's follow-up on things, for example, like Christine paying off a bet and eating French onion soup, which she's owed for more than a year at this point. I'm glad I remembered this. You know what? If nothing else, Kraft Mac and Cheese Ice Cream has reminded me that producer Christine owes us French onion soup. Mm, Okay. It gets one point in my book for that reason alone. We will try to track down producer Christine maybe for tomorrow if she deigns to join us. Maybe Friday, heading into her big 4-0 weekend. We'll see. But I'll see you tonight on Gutfeld, 11 p.m. Eastern Fox News Channel on the panel. That should be wild, as always. Back here tomorrow on the radio, it's The Guy Benson Show. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com. From the Fox News Podcasts Network. Hey there, it's me, Kennedy. Make sure to check out my podcast, Kennedy Saves the World. It is five days a week, every week. Download and listen at foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you listen to your favorite podcast. Listen to the show ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts.